Ladies and gentlemen, it is a long journey to this moment. I am naturally indebted to And the Oscar goes to... Hello, and welcome to Thank the Academy, the podcast where we talk about every Academy Award-winning Best Picture film in order. We're your hosts, Zach and Kristen, and that's Kayla, our producer. Howdy. Hello, everyone. Howdy. Well, yeah, howdy. (laughs) (laughs) And welcome to the 42nd Academy Awards and the 42nd Best Picture winner, Midnight Cowboy. Yeehaw. Not a Western. Not a Western. <laughs> Definitely not a Western. <laughs> a Western guy. Yeah, more of a Southwestern Texan. Yeah. <laughs> um. So we'll get into that. Uh, lots to talk about this film. Yes, I'm very, very excited to hear the making of this film because it's very interesting to me. Yeah. And I am interested in hearing about the ceremony stuff because... I know there's a couple interesting things going on this year. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited to get into it. But first, we have to bring you the Penny News. The news about Penny. A pup date. Yeah. What's going on in Penny's world this week? Well, you know, first of all, not much because not much goes on with Penny. But (laughs) at the same time, she does have a rich inner life, you know. But I tend to work pretty late at night um, just because that's the way my life goes a lot of the time. So I usually get back home around like 11, you know, Mm -hmm. I'd say that's kind of the average time, sometimes earlier, sometimes later. But one of my very, very favorite things about Penny is that she is just always happy to see you. And her favorite time to see you is late at night. Mm -hmm. So usually at that point in time, you and Penny have gone up to bed. Mm -hmm. And so you're usually asleep. Or close to it. Mm -hmm. And Penny will be in bed with you. And I'll quietly open the door and try to sneak in. And she'll just look at me from where she's laying on the bed. And I'll just hear the thump, 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 thump as her tail starts going crazy. And then she'll like sit up a little bit, like kind of like laying with her paws out in front of her. And then she'll start to wriggle all the way to the end of the bed with her tail just going crazy. And I'll come over and I'll give her kisses. And she just like licks my face like crazy. And Penny is not a kissy girl. Like Mm -mm. she was when she was a puppy. But at this point, she's not a dog that is free with her kisses. Mm -mm. But for some reason at 11 p.m., she just (laughs) wants to lick my face off. The kissing hour. The kissing hour, yes. Well, and it's funny because I think she, I mean, she obviously knows that that is like part of the routine. So I don't think that she, she doesn't even really go to sleep. I mean, she doesn't deep sleep until after that. Oh, I see what you mean. Like she kind of is alert. She knows that you're going to come home if you're not there. So like. Right. Oh, sweet girl. I I mean, it just makes me so happy. There's nothing better than knowing that someone's looking forward to you coming home. <laughs> <laughs> and I always tell Zach, I'm like, this is the time that she loves me the most. <laughs> it's true. Well, good job, Penny. Yeah, I love you, little puppy. So shall we get into the ceremony? Yes, let's do it. So today we are talking about the 41st Academy Awards and Best Picture winner, Midnight Cowboy. First of all, did you like this movie? We didn't even say anything about it at the top. Um, 
yeah, I liked I, I liked parts of the movie. I felt like it makes sense for the time. I mean, the whole countercultural movement that's exploding and yeah. like making its way into film finally. Yeah. In like mainstream film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree. I and found it very interesting. What I liked most about it were like the scene work. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And specifically the scenes between the two male leads. They were just like good scenes that yeah. like must have been really fun to act and shoot. Yeah. It's uh like just such a gem for actors when you're given something like that and it's just going to be easy to get a good performance out, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. And like I had no clue what I was walking into. I mm-hmm. didn't know anything about this movie before. So it was a little bit much for me at first. But once I like got into the groove of what I was watching, I was like, okay, cool. Um, yeah. I found it to be very, uh, very timely, mm-hmm. which to me has made it even better because, you know, we've been watching these in that context. So that was really fun. All right, let's get into the ceremony here. So it was held on April 7th, 1970. Wow. We're into the 70s. Oh my gosh, it's just crazy. Uh, Once again, at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, I talked about that last week, how they made the big move. Um, Mm -hmm. So this year, we have some new people on board. Uh, It is directed by Jack Haley Jr., who has a bunch of entertainment emmys etc he was the second husband of liza minnelli um you know Mm -hmm. big connection to the entertainment industry produced by mj frankovich um who funny enough was a football player turned actor Mm. and producer Mm -hmm. i don't know if you know who that is i've heard the name okay well he produced it so there you go um for the second year in a row there was no host Mm. which worked out great for them. And they kind of framed it in a different way this time. Uh, At the opening of the ceremony, Gregory Peck, the president of the Academy at the time, comes out. He gives kind of opening remarks uh, because he is the president. Mm -hmm. Um, And during his like opening remarks, he introduces the, quote, friends of the Oscar, Hmm. who are the presenters slash the people who will be doing little bits throughout the show in order to kind of move things along and guarantees that you'll be in good hands with them, that kind of thing. But to me, it's just such a, it's a system that really works because then everybody gets to do a little bit here and there, you know, as they're doing their presentations. They also pre-record some little Hmm. sections, like I'll talk about one in a few minutes, um, that are just like interesting little bits Mm -hmm. so that the host doesn't have to do anything. Yeah, right. So I encourage the academy to hear our plea (laughs) (laughs) and stop bringing on hoes that don't care about movies yeah yeah that's like one of the strangest things because when the emmys i mean most recent hosts uh uh, like sort of a new longtime host of the emmys is stephen colbert and he loves television right he deserves he's obsessed with television yeah and so he finds a way to make the most of that time hosting the Emmys, talking so much about television. Mm-hmm. And honoring the history of television. Right. But it's like, I don't know. Why would you not do that for yeah. film? Yeah. Anyways. <laughs> Anyways. Uh. So this is the first Academy Awards ceremony to be broadcast via satellite to an international audience. Oh, interesting. Um, they only did satellite outside North America, but... um. The way it ended up working out was that Mexico and Brazil were the two countries that were able to receive the broadcast for it live. Mm. The other, you know, nations across the world ended up getting a recorded version of it a couple hours later that was still sent 
via satellite. Mm-hmm. Um, like it wasn't, you know, a physical copy a couple days later because they received it very shortly afterwards. But what happened was lots of people were trying to convince the Academy Awards to change the start time to 1 p.m. in order to fit a European television audience. But this oh. concept was rejected by the AMPAS executives. Mm. They decided to stick with the American time. Mm-hmm. Um, and since a lot of the like television standards conversions were difficult, about 50 countries did not receive the broadcast live. Um, and in Europe... Most TV broadcasters signed off at midnight, so they couldn't be broadcast live. Um, and mm. so for most European countries, they're recorded on film, shipped to the broadcasters with a minimum four-day delay from the awards broadcast date. Oh, interesting. So they kind of are starting to integrate these different techniques of uh, mm-hmm. sharing the broadcast, but there's still not a really great way to get it to an international audience. Yeah. Um, As I mentioned, Gregory Peck opened the show. Uh, His opening remarks were very cute. Um, Of course, he is someone who loves movies, loves Hollywood. Um, And so he opens it with um, just like introducing everyone, explaining how Oscar voting works, which I thought was funny. And then I wanted to just talk about one little segment that I thought was extremely interesting. Mm. So he asks the questions. What is the meaning of the new freedom of the screen? Is it something to be feared? Should the screen be censored? And then he says, we've cut to some pre-recorded questions that we've asked the most illustrious directors of our time. Mm. And so then they go to a bunch of different directors and they ask them essentially these questions about censoring, about the new style of films. They ask them about nudity. They ask them about Mm. all kinds of like really hard topics, I guess. So they ask directors Mike Nichols, Federico Fellini, John Schlesinger, Akira Kurosawa, David Lean, and Billy Wilder. And basically, it's just a very funny interview to me as a modern person because Mm. you can see in their eyes, all of these directors are like, oh my gosh, yes. And to every question, they're (laughs) like, yes, this is good. No, there shouldn't be censoring. We should be allowed to do what we want. My favorite quote from the whole thing comes from Billy Wilder, who says, quote, I am for more nudies. (laughs) oh boy so as we can see there's a little bit of a cultural shift going on and uh these directors are at the forefront of it as things go they have to the pendulum has to swing really hard in one direction before it kind of corrects itself absolutely i mean everybody knows that if you shelter your kid and don't let them ever do anything the second they get to college what are they going to do Go crazy. <laughs> so here's America. We've been told that you're not allowed to flush a toilet on screen. <laughs> and now suddenly you can do nudies. So what well, are you going to do? I don't know. I guess you're going to do the nudies. <laughs> <laughs> more nudies. More nudies. <laughs> uh, so Midnight Cowboy became the first and only technically X-rated film to win the Academy Award for Best Picture. Mm-hmm. Since then, it's been downgraded to an R and it is not an X-rated film. For those of you who have not seen this movie. Well, and also like the rating system has changed many times. You know, X rating went away for a long time. Yeah. And now there's no X rating. It's called NC-17. Right. And so it's just very different. Well, and there was no PG-13. I would classify this as like a PG-13 movie. Interesting. Yeah, probably. Right? Yeah. 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 There's like not that much in it yeah just content it's just the content yeah um but uh it is technically rated x when it wins which is very funny to me because the year before the only g-rated film won best picture which is oliver so again the pendulum (laughs) be a swinging 
<laughs> so uh, we're in a crazy time, people. Um, so the film, They Shoot Horses, Don't They, set an Oscar record by receiving nine nominations this year without one for Best Picture. Very interesting. Yeah. And I mean, films like this is what ended up making them change eventually to allowing more than five yes. Best Picture nominees yeah. again. Well, and in looking through the nominees and the winners of the year, there's a couple like, you know, True Grit and Midnight Cowboy and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid have several in several categories. But there's a lot that pop up here and there mm-hmm. and have like multiple awards that aren't, you know, Best Picture nominated or mm-hmm. like don't have a Best Director nomination or whatever it is, you mm-hmm. know. And it just goes to show that there's a lot going on that has merits in different ways. And I feel like we're starting to really get into a point where people don't agree about what the nature of a best picture winner is. Mm-hmm. And there's so many different innovations and styles of films coming out that we're about to kind of enter something that we're still in, which is like, how do you pick? Right. How do you determine what the best picture is when you have films that are so vastly different, but each have their own merit? Mm-hmm. So it's about to get political. Mm-mm. Um. So this is the last time until the 68th Academy Awards. We're at the 42nd Academy Awards. So until the 68th, where none of the four winning performances came from Best Picture nominees. Yeah, very, very interesting. As I'm saying, you know, it's like there's just so many good pictures that are coming out and lots of different styles that people are trying to recognize. I mean... Yeah. And it's weird because we've talked about the like acting awards mixed with the Best Picture awards and how for women it's rarely combined and for men it has been for a while and supporting actors typically go with best picture more often than leading Mm -hmm. but now to have it go so long without is very strange Mm -hmm. yeah very interesting um this is also the first time where every acting nomination and every major nominated film were in color (gasps) wow moving away interesting yeah mm -hmm. so that's what the trends are now it's kind of weird to watch these things in color too like yeah it just still feels very fresh mm-hmm. um this year uh, speaking of acting um john wayne won his only oscar for his performance in true grit um he was nominated once before for sands of iwo jima and then he was also nominated as the producer of the alamo in mm. 1960 but this is his only uh performance win mm-hmm and I also wanted to just point out a couple of other things about our actors this year. Um, Dame Maggie Smith wins her first Oscar. Amazing. Yeah. She was nominated once before for Othello. And so this year she wins Best Actress and she'll win Best Supporting Actress in the future. But this is her first win. Also, I just wanted to mention that this is Liza Minnelli's first nomination. Yeah. She's nominated for Best Actress in The Sterile Cuckoo. Hmm. Um, so I thought that was pretty great. Um, both of them are kind of going to be on our radar going forward. So yeah. I wanted to call them out. And last but not least, I just wanted to mention that the film Z was honored as uh, the best foreign language film, but it was also nominated for best picture in general. And yeah. this is the first time that a film from a different country has been nominated for best picture other than England. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and it was also nominated in the foreign language film category with best picture as well yeah so that's great pretty exciting and just a reminder it is the film with the shortest title to ever be nominated for best picture there you go one letter z, z. <laughs> yes it's an algerian french uh political thriller very fun 
So uh, just to wrap things up on my end here, let's uh, talk about some of these award winners here today. Yeah. So for Best Picture, of course, goes to Midnight Cowboy, uh, Jerome Hellman, producer. Best Director goes to John Schlesinger for Midnight Cowboy. Mm-hmm. Best Actor goes to John Wayne for True Grit. Best Actress goes to Maggie Smith for The Prime of Miss Jean Brody, as Jean Brody. Best Supporting Actor goes to Gig Yun for They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Best- well, and I have not seen this film and i wanted to just mention the plight that we have in this as we have had in many that both male leads were Mm -hmm. uh nominated as best actor and not as uh best actor and best supporting oh yes you're right i should have paused here and so clearly one of them could have won yes sorry he's talking about midnight cowboy yes both dustin hoffman and john voight were nominated for best actor which as we have talked about dilemmas over and over again in the past, mm-hmm. you can't win when both of you are in the same category. Yes. So this, I think, is just kind of a sad thing. I really think that Dustin Hoffman, of the two of them, could or should have won. Mm-hmm. Um, and Do you think he should have been in the Best Supporting cat- category? Yeah. That's what I thought, too. Because he's not the Midnight Cowboy. <laughs> so... Uh, John Voight should have been nominated as Best Actor, which yeah. he was. And then Dustin Hoffman should have been nominated as Best Supporting Actor, and he should have won. I so. would agree. I would definitely agree with that. Revised history, that's what would have happened. Yeah. And I'm assuming that this is how Gig Young was able to win, and maybe even how John Wayne was able to win. I mean, we don't know how that both of them being in that category split the votes. Sure, so. absolutely. There, I also should mention, though, that there is a lot of like, oh, we should give John Wayne something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You I know? mean, yeah. And this happens, too, where it's like we're awarding his like full career. His body of work as opposed yeah. to one film. And I mean, everybody seems to think that this is one of his best films. So that's I mean, good. yeah, it's fine. He's good in it. Okay. And it's like a classic film. It's yeah. a great Western. To be honest, Kim Darby, who plays Maddie Ross in the film, mm. uh, pulls so much of the weight of the film too <laughs> and the fact that he is acting opposite her for a lot of it yeah is helping him and she did not even get nominated which is crazy mm-hmm. um but i don't know yeah you can have your opinion he's fine it's fine that he won <laughs> but just saying <laughs> so as i was saying gigan does win best supporting actor for they shoot horses don't they mm-hmm. and best supporting actress goes to goldie hahn for cactus flower yeah Best story and screenplay based on material not previously published or produced, a.k.a. original screenplay, goes to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Best screenplay based on material from another medium or adapted screenplay goes to Midnight Cowboy, based on the novel. Best documentary feature goes to Arthur Rubinstein, The Love of Life. Best documentary short subject goes to Czechoslovakia, 1968. Best live action short subject goes to The Magic Machines. Best short subject cartoon or animated goes to It's Tough to Be a Bird, mm. which is part of the you know Disney Animation Studios. Mm-hmm. Um, it is given to uh, Ward Kimball, who's one of the Disney's original nine old men. Best original score for a motion picture that was not a musical. Ah, so a little different now. <laughs> yes. There are two awards for score being given out. One is for not a musical. One is for possibly a musical. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> change in that category set once again. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be a while before they iron it out. But I, I mean, there's still a decent amount of musicals coming out. Yeah. So 
Um, best original score for a motion picture, not a musical, goes to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Best score of a musical picture, original or adaption, goes to Hello, Dolly. Of course. So in the past, the way they've split this up is they've done one for original, one for adaption of a musical score. So mm-hmm. it was a, an original movie musical or if it had moved from Broadway to the screen. Right. It's confusing. This is where we're at. Best song original for the picture goes to Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Yeah, amazing song and like hugely popular. It's, it's amazing that like it came out in, you know, conjunction with this film. I had no idea about that. Yeah. I, I just didn't know. It's in so many movies these days that like I just assumed it was, you know, a popular song. Yeah, but, and uh, it's great in the film, obviously. Yeah. Uh, best sound goes to Hello, Dolly. Best foreign language film goes to Z from Algeria. Best costume design goes to Anne of the Thousand Days. Best art direction goes to Hello, Dolly. Best cinematography goes to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Best film editing goes to Z. And finally, best special visual effects goes to Marooned. Hmm. Uh, So this year, there is an honorary award given. Um, Frank Sinatra presents it to Cary Grant mm-hmm. uh, for his contributions. It's a very sweet video if you want to watch it. Um, additionally, there is a Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award given to George Jessel, who is an actor, and it was given to him for his contributions to the motion picture industry. Nice. Which is always like a funny phrase to me, but it's basically like, you did a lot. We like you. Yeah. Have an award. We would like to honor you. <laughs> So in the end, um, Anne of the Thousand Days had 10 nominations. They Shoot Horses, Don't They, had nine. And Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Hello, Dolly, and Midnight Cowboy had seven nominations. But the final shakeout uh, was that Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid won four, Hello, Dolly, and Midnight Cowboy won three, and the film Z won two. Interesting. Yeah, it's so weird now that like films are not winning more than like five or six. Yeah. So uh, that's what I have to share today. Um, Let's take a little break here. And when we get back, you can tell us all about Midnight Cowboy. (gasps) Yeah. And we're back. Time to talk about the year 1969. Nice. So first, some births. Uh, I had to cut a lot of births because there are so many. Uh, Vern Troyer, Jason Bateman, Dave Bautista, Patton Oswalt, Michael Sheen, Jennifer Aniston, Javier Bardem, Padgett Brewster, Terrence Howard, Paul Rudd, Renee Zellweger, Wes Anderson, Kate Blanchett, Peter Dinklage, Ice Cube, Ken Jong, Jennifer Lopez, Edward Norton, Christian Slater, Matthew Perry, Jack Black, Bong Joon-ho, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Zach Galifianakis, Steve McQueen, Matthew McConaughey, and Gerard Butler. Wow. It's an entire generation. Oh, uh, yeah. Many. Factors. Many, many. Some debuts. Uh, we have Bob Balaban, Ed Begley Jr., David Bowie, Sam Elliott, Farrah Fawcett, Bridget Fonda, Miriam Margolis, Ian McKellen, Al Pacino, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sam Shepard, Christopher Walken, and Michael Emmett Walsh. Wow. Nice. Got some fun debuts there. Um, and deaths of 1969, uh, Barton McLean, Howard McNear, uh, Boris Karloff. We have Thelma Ritter. Sad. No. We've talked about her many times. Yeah. Um, she had six Best Supporting Actress nominations. 
That is a supportive girl there. Yeah, which is a record. She has the most for any supporting actor. And that ties her for second for women for the most nominations and no wins. Oh. Um, She was also nominated four years in a row from 1950 to 1953, which is pretty amazing. Um, And she hosted the ceremony once with Bob Hope. Right. Yeah. Very fun. Director Carl Freund. Uh, he was the director of Metropolis way back in the day. Um, he also won uh, Best Cinematography for The Good Earth. He was the inventor of what was considered at the time the unchained camera. Um, he was the first person to kind of say, hey, we can take a camera off a tripod and do lots of things with it. Hmm. And then he was also the cinematographer for I Love Lucy. And we've mentioned him before hmm. because he was the one who came up with the way to light uh, sitcoms for multicam purposes. Ah, very nice. Immense contributions. Yeah, huge contributions to the industry from Carl Freund. Um, also this year, Judy Garland. <laughs> um, of course, she won the Academy Juvenile Award. She was nominated for Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress. Um, when she was 39, she became the youngest person and first woman to win the Golden Globes Cecil B. DeMille Lifetime Achievement Award. Um, she was the 11th overall winner of that award. Aww, poor Judy. Um, Leo McCary, he was a writer and director. He was nominated for eight Academy Awards total, including Best Director, Best Writing, and Best Song, which is interesting. <laughs> um, he won Best Director for The Awful Truth and Going My Way, and won uh, Best Writing for Going My Way. Hmm. Um, Bess Meredith, she was a screenwriter. Um, Her husband was director Michael Curtiz. She was also one of the original 36 founders of the Academy. Pretty fun. Very nice. Um, She was very close with Irving G. Thalberg while he was alive, and he relied on her a lot for opinions on stories and such. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately, she ended up being let go by MGM when he died. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. Um, Also, this year, we have the death of Sharon Tate, (laughs) which I will mention more in a bit. And then William Getz, who was a co-founder of 20th Century Pictures and then was vice president of 20th Century Fox after they merged. Mm. Um, So a couple little tidbits of news this year. Uh, The Kinney National Company acquires Warner Brothers Seven Arts and renamed the company Warner Brothers Inc. Uh, So (laughs) So Seven Arts merged and they did that for two years and like they were totally failing as a company still. Um, and so this Kinney National Company decided to acquire them and change their name back to their original name. So there we go. <laughs> uh, this is the last year that prizes are given out at the Venice Film Festival for the next decade. Hmm. They just decided that it shouldn't be competitive anymore. And that <laughs> lasted for a decade until they began uh, giving awards out again. <laughs> They're like, enough of this. Yeah. Sony debuted a new device this year called the Video Cassette Recorder, or the VCR. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. Early. It doesn't really go on the public market for a while. Sure. Uh, but it has been invented. Okay. Um, of course, on August 9th, 1969, Sharon Tate and many of her friends are murdered by members of the Manson family. Boy. Pretty crazy. Um, including um, the heiress to the Folgers company. I didn't realize that she oh was my. one of them. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's of the a famed Folger family. Huge uh, cultural moment there. Yeah. 
so first artists production company was formed this year by Sidney Poitier, Barbara Streisand, uh, Paul Newman, and later Dustin Hoffman so that they could have more control over their own projects. Sounds like a good team to me. Yeah. Um, the company lasted until 1980 when they decided to sell it after producing um, about 25 films and television shows. Nice. Yeah, pretty fun. Gordon Parks directs his autobiographical piece, The Learning Tree, becoming the first black director of a major U.S. film produced by a major U.S. studio. Wow, congrats. Yeah. There have been other black directors before, but yeah. this is the first one that is like given like major funding and a major distribution deal um, by a major studio. Wow, in 1969. Yes. Um, so then we have the 22nd Primetime Emmy Awards, um, My World and Welcome to It, which was canceled after its first season, won Outstanding Comedy Series, becoming the only show to be won and done and win one of the Best Show Awards. That's crazy. Yeah. So I don't know what's going on they there. They need to get their act together over at the Emmys. Yeah. Um, also for the comedy category, none of the shows nominated the previous year were nominated this year, marking the only time this ever happened for both comedy or drama for all of time for oh the Emmys. <laughs> just silliness. And a fun show that won uh, was Sesame Street. Huzzah! Uh, outstanding children's program in this, its first year on air. Well, it is outstanding. Yeah, pretty fun. Yeah. Um, the 24th Tony Awards happened uh, around this time also. Borstal Boy won Best Play. Don't okay. know what that is. Cool. Some kind of Irish play. Um, and Applause won Best Musical, which, of course, is the adaptation of All About Eve. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah. Lauren Bacall won Best Actress in a Musical as Margot in Applause, um, beating Katherine Hepburn in her one and only Broadway musical appearance Ooh. in the show Coco. I don't think she can really sing, though. So. Yeah, I don't know how that went. Yeah. Noel Coward, Alfred Lunt, and Lynn Fontaine all won honorary awards this year. And nice. Barbara Streisand won an honorary award that was titled Star of the Decade. Just what she needs. <laughs> so there's also that. <laughs> In case she wasn't feeling high and mighty already. It's so funny to me. Her story is very interesting. I, I mean, she's so good and funny girl, but it's just so interesting to me that like one thing can propel you. Yeah. And launch and like make you this like acclaimed star of the decade. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because I'm assuming this is all in reference to funny girl, right? Yeah. 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 It's, yeah. Interesting. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, she's also doing some other things around that time, but mostly it's funny girl. Yeah. Um, all right. So on to the film, Midnight Cowboy. First, I will give a recap. And also, just so you know, we'll be discussing some adult themes during this. No way around it. Yeah. So beware. <laughs> be ye warned. <laughs> um, so Joe Buck decides to leave his crummy life in Texas for his dream of living in the big city of New York to become a hustler, to sell himself to the sex-starved rich women who live there creating a new and fanciful life for himself. When he arrives, he struggles to fit in and struggles to turn his dream into a reality. Eventually, he meets Ratso Rizzo, a con artist who takes him in and they live together in a condemned, empty apartment on the brink of being torn down. They barely survive the winter as Ratso gets sicker and sicker and Joe continues to strike out. Finally, realizing his friend is dying, Joe decides they should leave that night to try to achieve Ratso's big dream of living in Florida. Before they make it there, Ratso dies in the bus, and Joe realizes he has lost his only friend. 
Yeah, it's a tough one. <laughs> a little dark. Um, this film had a budget of $3.2 million, so pretty small budget for the time. And it grossed about $44, $45 million. Mm-hmm. Um, it grossed $20.5 million in 1969, making it the third highest grossing film of the year, behind Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and Disney's The Love Bug. Oh, I do love the love bug. Yeah. <laughs> so those are the top two. And then we've got uh, Midnight, Midnight Cowboy. Cowboy. Oh. So the story started as a novel written by James Leo Herlihy. Uh, the story presented in the film is only actually the second half of the novel. Oh, my. Um, so the first half goes into way more detail about Joe's upbringing and how he discovers his ability to use sex to get people to like him, um, both men and women. I think looking back on it now, you could possibly say that he had some sort of a social disorder growing up. Mm. And so he was unable to sort of make any kind of lasting connection. They mm. also tie this into like he he didn't really have parents and he was um, raised by his grandmother who was constantly having flings with random men. And so in his mind, the only types of relationships that you had were sexual. Mm. Um, so to get friends, he would like do sexual favors for people essentially and anybody, men or women. Um, uh, eventually after a failed stint working in a brothel in Texas, um, and after being raped by the madam's son, he decided to finally leave Texas, hoping his talents in bed could make him more money by serving richer clients in New York city. Mm. Yeah. So that is like the first half of the story. Well, you know, it goes to show that the writers had a very good sense. And it makes sense to me why it would win Best Adapted Screenplay. Because yeah. I, you're all of that is kind of communicated to you mm-hmm. throughout this screenplay. Yeah. You can tell that he's come from something that he doesn't get what's going on. Right. You know. Yeah. And they really use a lot of good flashback. And yeah. um, mm-hmm. just the way that they... I don't know. The way that it's edited and shot, too, they do a really good job of, like, showing his internal struggle throughout yeah, a lot of parts of it. Definitely. Um, a lot of confusion. weird metaphorical, mm-hmm. like, storytelling, visual. Yeah. Well, and I, it's a really, really good example of show, don't tell. Yeah. Because you get the gist of this mm-hmm. without them ever having to do the first half of the book then. Yeah. That's great. Um, so Jerome Hellman and John Schlesinger had a friendship and they were eager to work on something together. Um, they both had recently read the novel and John was ready to turn it into a film. The changing landscape of the culture, of course, and Hollywood gave them the perfect opportunity to have success with the story at this time because it definitely could not have been made even just a couple years earlier. Um, they brought on screenwriter Waldo Salt to adapt the piece and after securing the funding, um, they began trying to cast the two leads. They read most of the new young male stars uh, for both roles before narrowing their field. Um, They decided to cast Dustin Hoffman first after making sure that their shooting schedule wouldn't overlap with The Graduate, which he had just been cast in. Oh, so this is like at the same time, essentially. Yeah. Wow, I didn't realize that. Um, So luckily for him, he was able to shoot them both back to back. Man, he just like came out swinging. Yeah, it's crazy. That's crazy. I assumed that he was casting this because of the success of The Graduate. No, and they kind of went to Mike Nichols too, who had just cast him in The Graduate. And they were like, do you think he's going to be, like, do you think he would be okay for this movie as well? Like, obviously the tone of The Graduate, it's going to be very different. Right, yeah. And they were all like, yeah, great. He's an actor. He can do it. (laughs) 
So they were trying to narrow the field down to six for the part of Joe. Um, one of the people who was in the running for that was Harrison Ford. Ah, that would make sense. Um, and John Voight had been told at this point that he was out of the running. Um, but he kept going back to his agent to see if they'd actually cast the role. And if they hadn't cast it, he wanted to still be involved. Aww. So his agent found out that they were still casting. And so... Uh, they sent him to New York to do a screen test with the other six Joes and to read with Hoffman. Um, they ended up really liking his screen test, especially his look in the costume yeah. and the way that he was using his hat in the screen test. Ah, there you go. So they were going through the tests with Hoffman. They brought him in, actually, Dustin Hoffman, mm-hmm. to get his opinion on it. Oh, okay. Which is kind of strange because he's like, not anybody yet. I was going to say, he have not become... A famous actor yet. Yeah. So they asked him who he thought was the best. Um, So he watched them all with the uh, director and producer team and writers and stuff. Um, And he didn't want to say who he thought was the best. But the one thing he did offer is that when they were watching through all of them, he found himself mostly watching and critiquing his own performance. Oh, yeah. Except for when he watched the takes with John Voight. Then he felt like he couldn't stop watching John. Well, there you have it. Yeah. Wow, that's that is like a compliment of the highest order. Yeah, as an actor, because of course when you're watching these like screen tests of you and somebody else, right. you're gonna be watching yourself and being like, oh, why did I do that? Or like, like, oh, I didn't serve the the story, right? Or, whatever. or oh, I'm gonna change that when we actually right. get into <laughs> shooting it. Um, but yeah, so that that's stuck with them, and that was one of the impressive. reasons why they decided to cast him. Well, that um, is a great reason. Because he was still fairly new and had only done a few smaller parts up to this point, uh, John Voight, that is, um, to sweeten the deal for the producers, he actually offered to work at scale, taking the SAG minimum for the role. Oh, no. <laughs> no. He's a real Joe Buck. Yeah. Oh. Um, John. So that's what he did. Um, Why didn't his agent stop him? I, I don't know. I think his agent may have also felt like that was the right thing to do. You know, that is so tragic because you hear in the room, wow, he's the only one that I (laughs) felt I could watch without watching myself. And then he's like, I have got to sell myself to these producers. So tragic. Um, The other thing that he has said in many interviews after the fact is like, he just was desperate to do the role because he knew that it was like a star making role. Like whoever got the role was going to become really popular. Yeah. That's smart. It's smart. And, you know, you have to leverage. But I also, this is why you need to be able to talk to other people in the industry. Like, you, there needs to be more open communication so that someone could go to him and say, listen, you don't have to sell yourself short. Yeah. John Schlesinger was very insistent on the acting and dialogue feeling as natural as possible. Of course, we're in a new era of, like, extremely natural acting. Mm -hmm. Um, They rehearsed for around three to four weeks before shooting began, often improvising five to ten minute long scenes between the two leads as they worked on their characters. Hmm. They grew to love improvising as their characters so much that they would try to have conversations as them frequently. Um, trying to figure out what they must have spent all their time talking about together oh, because they're so just cute. such like different people, the characters. Right. Yeah. But they're buddies somehow. Yeah. Um, Waldo Salt was often around them uh, and would just record them. He would turn on a recorder around wow. them and listen to them talk um, and eventually would work several scenes and lines that they improvised during rehearsals and elsewhere into the script. 
Wow. The one question that was funny of like, what would you come back as if you were reincarnated? <laughs> that was from one of their like improvisational huh. moments. So cute. Because <laughs> they were just like, what would these guys talk about? Like, what's something so weird that they would talk about? And right. It's such a weird scene of like, what would you come back as if you were reincarnated? But and they're you like, know, it's very cute because it reminds me of little kids. Yeah. And it's so natural. And yeah. it's like, it's what they happened on. So it must be what like those characters would happen on. Wow. That is just such a cool creative process. Yeah. Very fun. Schlesinger and casting director Marion Doherty, um, who eventually is considered to be one of the best casting directors throughout the 70s and 80s in New York City. She made the most of the new trend of casting no names in all of the supporting roles uh, <laughs> to make the cast just look very normal, uh, very everyday people that you would just mm-hmm. like see anywhere and very like grimy in this film because it is a grimy film yeah it totally fits the style these people especially worked well in midnight cowboy because of the controversial material that were like stuff that was required of them because they didn't have anything to lose Mm. they were people who worked frequently in like the new york scene Uh and you know did commercials or did off-broadway and did things and like you know they were just going to get a small role in this film but it was great uh, one of these people um, who ended up getting a supporting actress nomination was Sylvia Miles, who played Cass. She's only in the film for like six minutes. Yeah, she's just right at the beginning, right? Yeah. yeah. It's one of the like shortest roles to ever receive a nomination. Hmm. Um, but she was like the perfect person for this part. Yeah. And looking back, she said that it was such an amazing part because it felt like the first role that she was able to just come in and serve the function of the role. Ah. Because it was meant to be messy and grimy and Mm -hmm. she could just be a regular looking woman and she didn't have to put on any airs to like play this part. That's great. Yeah. And it got her a nomination. Yeah, even better. (laughs) She said when she got the nomination, she called her dad and she was like, look, dad, I got a nomination. Aren't you proud? And he was like, yeah, but you were playing a hooker. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, the dilemmas. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Another person that this really worked out for was Bob Balaban. This was actually his first uh, role in this movie, and he was playing the young student. Um, Mm. So this is a very controversial part. Yes. But he likes to look back at it now as like, I caused this film to have an X rating. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. So it was just a fun part. He, He was just starting his career, and so he was saying how like it didn't feel weird to do this part and other more established actors would not have taken the role. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. And that's the way that that kind of role gets cast at this time. Right. And they all sort of felt like they could just be artists and be making a film. And like, there was no pretension and like, it's so fun. So they just got to like be in this film and it, Luckily, it had a lot of success. Yeah. Wow. Um, One of the famous scenes in this film is the Warhol-esque party that they go to. (laughs) The party was styled after the huge parties that Andy Warhol would throw in his studio. Um, So they actually had him come in and style the room that they were doing for the party. And they had him create the guest list as well. Oh, that's awesome. So that's why there's so many fun looking people at this party. Because a lot of them were the people who would go to his parties. That's so fun. Yeah. 
So most of them came like wearing their own wardrobe and just <laughs> were the extras in this party. And they filmed this party scene for about a week. <gasps> oh no. <laughs> and so they just like were having this Andy Warhol rager for a oh week. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, and if those are the people that normally go to his yeah. parties, you know that they they're are bringing partying. their drugs. Oh, yeah. yeah. And they're time. bringing alcohol and they're having a good time. It was funny because a lot of the crew basically said after this that they felt like they were a documentary crew like that's hilarious documenting <laughs> an Andy Warhol party <laughs> well and I'm sure it was very much like I don't care if this is filmed or not we're gonna have a good time mm -hmm. boy that's funny another major component of this film that made it very successful was the production design so they shot this all in New York City mm -hmm. um, with a couple location shooting days in like Texas and in Florida mm-hmm but then they wanted to shoot in this really rundown apartment, like the actual location. And they went there, but it was going to be torn down. So the production designer, uh, John Robert Lloyd, he went to the city of New York, actually, and said, I know you're about to tear down this building. Would it be okay if I went into this building and like removed a bunch of stuff from it oh. so that like I can take it for a film? And they were like, yeah, sure, uh, we don't care. It's just going to be, like, thrown away anyways. Yeah. So he went into the room that they had, like, taken pictures of and stuff and basically took a bunch of the stuff and made it into the set on a studio. Oh, nice. Um, so he took, you know, furniture, but he also took, like, huge sections of walls and, like, <laughs> windows and the, like, pull-down, like, nasty-looking yellow drape things and, like... So he like recreated this whole nasty apartment. Wow. Uh, on a soundstage. That is so cool. Yeah. And it comes through like it is so nasty looking when they're living there. Hmm. So um, the last portion of this uh, we come to is the X rating. Okay. So once the film had been made and cut together, a copy was sent to the MPAA, of course, to get the suggested rating since that is what we do now. And they said it would not be able to be released as is unless it had an X rating. Um, at the time, that was kind of seen as pretty bad, not just because of the content, but there were things that couldn't be done then when you had an X rated film. Uh -huh. So there were a number of theaters around the country that just would not play X rated films. Sure. Also, you were not allowed to run ads for X rated films on television. Oh, right. Yeah, okay. So there were a lot of rules about the way that you were allowed to promote the film, um, yeah. things that were allowed to be on the poster or not be on the poster. So this was kind of a thing that they were like, well, what should we do? It's like, do we yeah. cut the film or do we try to get an R rating? But they went ahead and just decided to leave it as is. Um, the main basis for the rating, of course, was the off-screen oral sex between the young student and Joe. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of a preemptive rating because they knew that the like homosexuality inherent in the film would get backlash. Sure. They weren't necessarily saying that it was wrong. They just knew that the more it was out there, yeah. the more backlash they would get. Well, yeah. And it seems like they're not saying it's rated X because there are there's homosexuality in the film. No. It's rated X because there is a sex act right. in the film. Right. So they didn't want to change anything. So they just accepted the X rating. <laughs> um, fortunately, it actually turned out to be a selling point of the film. 
Um, sure. Because it was a major studio film and it was rated X and it was getting out there, people were much more eager to see it because it was rated X. Yeah. Like, they were like, oh, what's this X-rated film? Like, not like... I don't know. They wanted to go see something super so, something salacious. Or, yeah, yeah, salacious. It was just like, oh, why would they rate it X? That seems so weird. Oh, and it's a very like popular, like big studio film. Also, like it has Dustin Hoffman in it, so like there's a yeah. A name they in just it. watched yeah. the, him in The Graduate, and so it's like, well, he's great. He's right. popular. Let's what go could see he him. do that's so bad? You know. Yeah. So that led to it being very popular. Uh, of course, then the film won Best Picture. Um, and the MPAA decided to come back to United Artists and apologize. Wow. Saying that if United Artists cut one frame out of the film so that the MPAA could publicly say that the film was recut. Oh my gosh. They would reduce the film to R. So they cut like one scene from a B-roll shot, right? Well, Schlesinger (laughs) would not allow it. And he said, that is really dumb, and you're trying to be high and mighty. Uh, and the producers at United Artists, who distributed it, said, yeah, that's dumb. We're not okay. going to do that. All right. Hold and your guns. so the MPAA just said, all right, we'll reduce the rating to R anyways. Okay. See, that's what you get when you stick to your principles. Yeah. Um, but it's funny because everybody is kind of like, well, I guess the Academy said it was okay. So now yeah, we, we right. can say that it's okay, too. <laughs> Well, here's what I'll say. Silly as all that is, at least the MPAA came around. Mm-hmm. It goes to show that there's, you know, progress to be made. And it's still a tricky time. I think people still don't know what to do with a lot of this stuff. Yeah. And they are swinging really hard in one direction. Like they're putting, I, there are films that are coming out that are way more sexual than this sure. film at the time. Yeah. So like this is tame compared to some other ones, mm-hmm. but you know, they are got to push the boundaries one way or the other to get, like, I don't know, you got to see where the line is. Like, what are we really allowed to do? And, like, right. what are the new ways that we're allowed to tell stories now right. in this, like... Well, and how can you use content that was previously not allowed to tell a good story? And when does that content override the good story? You know what I mean? Yeah, and that stuff hasn't been done. So they have to see what works, too. Right, yeah. Yeah. And I think in this situation like for the most part it worked like it's a pretty good movie and yeah well and how are you supposed to cut anything from it if you cut anything from it or change anything about yeah. it you lose the impact well and it is supposed to be a little grimy and grotesque and sad and yeah. you're supposed to see their desperation very clearly right. and you know and also to see their humanity and to see that like yeah. you know these topics that are so taboo there are people who are like living in them and that there's not something inherently wrong with those people, you Mm -hmm. know? And that like, I don't know, it's a new conversation. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that has been said about it is that John Schlesinger, he was from England. And so he was able to, when he would come to New York city, he would see like New York city for what it was. Whereas Uh, a lot of New Yorkers, you know, would just walk past the guy laying on the ground. Right. Right. Whereas, he spends time focusing on it. And, you know, Joe is seeing New York City as John Schlesinger, the director, did. Yeah. And so it's like, I'm an outsider and this is weird. And like, how is the city behaving this way? People yeah. are just going to con me and that's okay. And like, <laughs> so it's interesting in that way too. And, and also there are people who I was watching an interview and um, it was Michael Childers who is 
John Schlesinger's lifetime partner Mm. who helped work on the film as well. And he was saying too, like, there wasn't anything in the film that wasn't happening on like any street in <laughs> any city in the world well, or and like there's nothing... specifically on 42nd street in <laughs> New York city. Like, yeah. Well, there's nothing in the film that you don't already know about. Yeah. Right. You know, it just so happens that people have not been allowed to tell those stories for all this time. And right. now they are. Yeah. Anyways. So that's the story of this film's success. I have one last question. Yeah. Is Rizzo the rat from the Muppets based on Ratso Rizzo? Uh, I believe so. Okay, because I think in A Christmas Carol, he says, hey, I'm walking here. Oh, yeah, right. You know, and I wasn't sure if it was, if like he had connection to this character. I think he, yeah, I think he is based on this character. I don't know for sure, but that's what I would assume. (laughs) Okay. I mean, this film was so hugely in the public zeitgeist when the Muppets were created. (laughs) (laughs) That just makes me very happy. Yeah. And he has the exact same voice as him. He does. (laughs) And he's a little New York rat. So (laughs) amazing. And with that, uh, we bring you to our final segment of thanking the Academy. Aww. Uh, We like to thank the Academy for things relating to this film or this year in film history. What would you like to thank the Academy for today, Kristen? Well, first, I would like to thank the Academy for actors that cause you to stop looking at yourself. Mm. I think that it's one of the greatest acting stories I've heard. I just, I don't know why, but that really gets me, you know? It just shows that there's some kind of magic there and that things are meant to be. And it's such a rare and beautiful joy to be able to perform and be so fully immersed in it that you aren't thinking about yourself you're just being which is like I think the thing that all actors strive for and when someone comes along and provides that for you man there's just nothing better so yeah I would love to thank the academy for that kind of chemistry yeah and it's fun because you just want to watch both I mean both of them in the film oh yeah Uh but particularly John Voight is just so cute in this film he's and so he's so cute. innocent and he's just walking around the city and taking it in and like and he gets conned and then he feels bad for the person that conned him but he's just always like doing something interesting yeah. on screen mm-hmm. and so you just want to watch him he yeah. all his little motions and maneuvers and like looking at the uh mirrors and yeah yeah you know taking care of his buddy yeah 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 it's such a joy I would like to thank the Academy for awarding an X-rated film. All right. And I wonder if they sort of felt like they should. Like, it was a film of high merit. And Uh I bet that went into a lot of people's minds of like, it would be good for film if a film (laughs) like this won. Well, I mean, that's what all those directors in the opening like bit said yeah they asked about it they were the code yeah they fought against the code for so many years yeah and so finally when they could stick it to the man yeah they did well and every single one of those directors who come from different backgrounds with different styles of films were all like yes a hundred percent yes push the boundaries no more censoring please for the love of god yeah so thanks to the Academy yeah. for awarding that film. Yeah. We have to set the scales back, you know? Yeah. Uh, I would like to thank the Academy for United Artists sticking to their guns. Yeah. I think that that is also a huge proponent in this movement and in making this new era of films work is that 
not only do people have to be allowed to do what they want to do, but the studios have to back them up. Well, and it's nice to see this studio continue to hold its ground. Oh, yeah. Throughout history. Oh, and, yeah. Like be a part of that movement. Mm-hmm. No matter who has been at the helm of that company, they realize the like purpose of the company and the way that it was started to lead things like this absolutely it makes me nervous because there's been several times throughout this podcast where i've gotten super gung-ho about something and then as time passes by and they turn out to be a bad person or something i'm like i'm really sorry i said that i didn't know i've learned this in real time but i have been so so impressed with united artists and i just i'm so rooting for everything that they're putting out and yeah, it's just amazing to see a company that ha- yeah, has stuck to their purpose, that defends their artists, mm-hmm. and has made that the priority. I mean, that's what makes film culture really good and thriving. Mm-hmm. And my final thanks would go to the variety of films that are now able to be released. Yay. Now that there is just a wider gamut of ratings and like less censorship. Mm-hmm. The top three films are so different and bizarre. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned them already, but just to mention again, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, fun Western. Mm-hmm. Then The Love Bug. <laughs> Disney Very family fun movie. Disney. <laughs> then Midnight Cowboy. <laughs> X-rated. Well, and in the same vein, the five best picture nominees are Midnight Cowboy, Anna the Thousand Days, which is like a historical piece with, yeah. um, what's this, Richard Burton and, yeah. you know. Um, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. Hello, Dolly. Yeah, very fun different. musical. Super fun. Z. Yeah. International film. Yeah. Political thriller. Very fun. Then, of course, you also have True Grit coming in there, which is like classic Western compared to like the new style Western, which right. is Butch Cassidy. And then the original, The Italian Job, which is so fun with Michael Caine <laughs> and Noel Coward. I mean, yeah, it's great. We've yeah. got a whole variety. We've, we're booming here. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true. And with that, we leave you. Yeah. And hope that you join us again when we bring you a new Academy Archives. Thank the Academy is going on summer vacation and we'll resume with the new Academy Archives episode on August 18th. Until then, check out some of our previous episodes in our backlog. You can follow us on social media at Thank the Academy Podcast on Instagram and at Thank Academy Pod on Twitter. If you enjoy listening to the show, make sure to leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on your favorite streaming platform. The theme song was created by the one and only Noah Heisinga. Join us next week on Thank the Academy.